Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast and a very Merry Christmas to you coming up here pretty quick. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Super excited to have you back joining me for the podcast today, where we're going to spend a little bit of time with Charles Dickens around Christmas, which will be lots of fun. want to thank you for sharing this podcast out and putting up reviews and letting your friends and family know about what we're doing here at the Mission Driven Mom, building a community and a movement of mothers who are changing the world in their everyday lives through finding and embracing true principles. Today we have three Dickens for Christmas, and I've got three Charles Dickens books chosen out for you. One for everyone in the family, the youngest kids and the youth and the adults all have something they can read this Christmas time that will help them really engage in the Christmas spirit. Now, the Christmas spirit is something <clears throat> that in our society we like to talk a lot about. That this is the Christmas spirit and that is the Christmas spirit. And it usually means something good, you know, like being kind or giving or sharing or or love or family or whatever all those things mean. But of course, ultimately, Christmas is when we celebrate the birth of Christ. And it's really the spirit of Christmas is really redemption and uh, forgiveness and becoming the best that we can be and obedience to God. All of those things are really what Christmas is all about, that our um, Savior came to redeem us. And these three books really highlight the true spirit of, tr of Christmas, what it really means to us as individuals and as children of God to have a God that loves us and has redeemed us, what that means for us in our everyday lives. So I want to start out with a little book called The Life of Our Lord. Now, this is a really special book. Charles Dickens wrote it about the life of Jesus for his children, and he would not let it be published. In fact, I'm going to read you from this book jacket, kind of the history of this book. In this charming, simple retelling of the life of Jesus Christ, adapted from the Gospel of St. Luke, Dickens hoped to teach his young children about religion and faith. Since he wrote it exclusively for his children, Dickens refused to allow publication. For 85 years, the manuscript was guarded as a precious family secret, and it was handed down from one relative to the next. When Dickens died in 1870, it was left to his sister-in-law, Georgina Hogarth. From there, it fell to Dickens' son, Sir Henry Fielding Dickens, with the admonition that it should not be published while any child of Dickens lived. Just before his... Just before the 1933 holidays, Sir Henry, then the only living child of Dickens, died, leaving his father's manuscript to his wife and children. He also bequeathed to them the right to make the decision to publish The Life of Our Lord. By a majority of votes, Sir Henry's widow and children decided to publish the book in London. In 1934, Simon & Schuster published the first American edition, 
which became one of the year's biggest bestsellers. Now, it's clear that Dickens was a true Christian believer in Jesus Christ, loved him very much, and of course, the core values taught in the Christian faith are very prevalent in Charles Dickens's works. I mean, for sure, they're just rich with principles and truths and admonitions and inspirations that, um, that can change us. And of course, they're also incredibly entertaining, but they do kind of have their own flavor. And I will admit that you have to spend a little time with Dickens before you get used to the language that he uses. It, it isn't easy, but the life of our Lord is a good place to start for just that reason. It was written to his children, for children, and it's the easiest Dickens you're ever going to get. Um, I want to read you from the beginning. He starts out with his children, and this is what he says. My dear children, I'm very anxious that you should know something about the history of Jesus Christ, for everybody ought to know about him. No one ever lived who was so good so kind, so gentle, and so sorry for all people who did wrong at, or were in any way ill or miserable as he was. And as he is now in heaven where we hope to go and all to meet each other after we are dead and there be happy always together, you never can think what a good place heaven is without knowing who he was and what he did. And so he goes in to, he was born a long, long time ago in a place called Bethlehem. And he goes on to begin talking about um, Jesus's life. Now, one of the things that I want to just bring up really quickly as I go a little bit more into this particular book, and that is that some people that I know that have read it have taken issue with something in particular about it. Now, it's very true to Jesus's life. There's no question about that. He's very respectful and honors uh, Christ and, and clearly loves him dearly and sees him as just absolutely amazing. But some people are concerned that he doesn't put Christ in a high enough place, that he doesn't talk about him as being God in maybe quite the way that they would want him to. And I thought about that again, looking back through this for this podcast. Of course, I've read this to my kids and um, have, have uh, we've loved it. And I can kind of see what they're talking about here, what their concern is, is coming from. Because, for example, he says here that um, the angel came to the shepherds and he was light and beautiful and he came moving over in the grass toward him. At first they were afraid and fell down and hid their faces, but the angel said, There is a child born today in the city of Bethlehem near here who will grow up to be so good that God will love him as his own son. And this is something that people are concerned about because it kind of has this flavor of, oh, well, is he just a man, but he's a really great man, and he's called the son of God because God loves him a lot, or does he really see Jesus in his proper place? So I will read you <clears throat> one other place. This is kind of how he introduces Jesus at the beginning, and then later on, he says, um, 
This is when he raises uh, the daughter of Jairus. And so then he says, he was always, Jesus was always merciful and tender. And, and of course, the name of Jesus. And when he says his or he, it's it's capitalized. And he, um, he uses it that way. Anyway, he says, he was always merciful and tender. And because he did such good and taught people how to love God and how to hope to go to heaven after death, he was called our savior. And he calls him the savior a lot of times, if not all the time, after he makes that comment and and explains that he is the savior. And he does go into when he's in the garden and he does go into when he's on the cross. And he actually goes into later on Christian persecution that happened after um, the death of Jesus Christ. He talks uh, very honestly about the miracles. He says that Jesus did do miracles and had the power to do miracles. He said that he, he gave his disciples the power of God and he had the power to forgive sin that he prophesied about his own resurrection. He talks about the transfiguration. So he does talk about all these activities of Jesus Christ as if he believes in them, as if they're factual. He teaches them to his children as if they all happened. Not as if he thinks Jesus was a great guy and taught some good principles that we should follow. He talks about Jesus as if everything he did is factual, as if he did do the miracles, did die on the cross, did resurrect, and that Dickens himself takes all those things literally that he was transfigured, that he did go again, you know, um, in front of the 40 men and that he did raise Lazarus from the dead. And so that's why I don't really take issue with this book at all. It, I do, I think that perhaps some of the language that he uses with his children, especially early on is just to keep it really, really simple for them and to help them get their mind around you know, who Jesus was and that he was born of a woman and that he was a man and in that sense, you know, and all that kind of thing. And so I don't have any reservations at all about reading it with my family. And I mean, I I, I probably wouldn't anyway, even if I think that didn't, Dickens didn't believe in, in Jesus the way that we did, then that, that doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, he can believe in Jesus the way he wants to and we'll believe in him the way we want to. But ultimately... Not only is his language respectful, but I do want to say that I do think that he did see Jesus as his savior, as God, as the person able to forgive him of sin and his children of sin. And it was so important to him and precious and private that he took the time to write this book, to read it to his children regularly and to pass it on to them so that all of his children and grandchildren would know what his faith was and hopefully adhere to it themselves. So I just think that's really beautiful and precious that he would do that. The language that he uh, uses is really sweet because he's talking just to his children. I have several favorite little spots. I'll tell you um, one one really sweet moment is when he's talking about um, the woman who the, the widow's might when she goes to the temple and gives away her last bit of money. He explains what happened. And he says, at last there was a poor widow who dropped in two mites, each half a farthing in value, and then went quietly away. Jesus, seeing her do this, as he rose to leave the place, called his disciples about him and said to them that that poor woman 
had been more truly charitable than all the rest who had given money that day, for the others were rich and would never miss what they had given. But she was very poor and had given those two mites which might have bought her bread to eat. Let us never forget what the poor widow did when we think we are charitable. And there's little lessons like that all the way through when he'll tell some story and then he'll say something really sweet uh, to his family, asking them to learn lessons from the life of Jesus and to exemplify him better, to strive to be more like him. And I think that I just loved that part where he said, when we think we are charitable, when we think we're making some really big sacrifice, let's remember we can never give as much as the poor widow did that Jesus praised. So it's really beautiful in that way. And then he talks about, like I mentioned, um, the death, the resurrection, the things that happened after the fact. And then, of course, the persecution of the Christians. And this is how the book ends. I'm going to read this to you because it's really, really beautiful. I do. I'm not sure. I don't. I think maybe it's not in the public domain because it wasn't actually finally published until 1934 and the family would own the copyright. So you may have to purchase it if you're going to read it. But anyway, uh, really, really, really worth reading yourself and reading to your children. He ends it this way. Yet for all this, and though the Christian religion was such a true and kind and good one, the priests of the old religions long persuaded the people to do all possible hurt to the Christians. And Christians were hanged, beheaded, burnt, buried alive, and devoured in theaters by wild beasts for the public amusement during many years. Nothing would silence them or terrify them, though, for they knew that if they did their duty, they would go to heaven. So thousands upon thousands of Christians sprung up and taught the people and were cruelly killed and were succeeded by other Christians until the religion gradually became the great religion of the world. Remember, it is Christianity to do good always, even to those who do evil to us. It is Christianity to love our neighbors as ourselves and to do to all men as we would have them do to us. It is Christianity to be gentle, merciful, and forgiving, and to keep those qualities quiet in our own hearts and never make a boast of them, or of our prayers, or of our love of God, but always to show that we love him by humbly trying to do right in everything. If we do this and remember the life and lessons of our Lord Jesus Christ and try to act up to them, we may confidently hope that God will forgive us our sins and mistakes and enable us to live and die in peace. And that is such a beautiful message that he passed on to his family through that private writing that he did just for them. So the second book that I want to highlight is a good one for youth to dig into, A Christmas Carol, which you're probably very familiar with. Um, Dickens wrote this, and there's actually a movie about how it kind of came about called The Man Who Invented Christmas. It was not easy to write and not taken very seriously at first, but was very popular with the public. And of course has become definitely a Christmas classic. You probably know the plot very, very well. Of course, this story starts out with Scrooge and his partner has been dead seven years or six years and everybody knows he's dead and Scrooge knows he's dead and we get to meet Scrooge and we get to know what kind of man he is really early on, that he is a miser, that he cares for no one and that, um, and, and we get to watch his transformation as he remembers what Christmas uh, is about and why it's important and, and his love for humanity 
is is kindled. I don't know if we could say it's rekindled, but he's taken by three uh, angels or spirits, three different nights, which end up becoming one night. And he's taken with them to see the past, the present, and the future. In his past, he sees the pain of his childhood, but also the joys of it. And he remembers how he lost the girl, the love of his life, through his growing greed and need for success. And that turned him cold, turned him off to humanity and made him um, seek for things that couldn't last and that didn't matter long term. And then in the present, he becomes more well acquainted, especially with um, his clerk's family. And we see Tiny Tim and get to know him. And we find out that he will probably die if he doesn't have the surgery that he needs. And he comes to see what a good man his um, clerk is and what hard circumstances that he lives in, specifically because Scrooge won't pay him better. And then he sees the future, what will become of him in his life. He's already met Marley. Marley comes to see him to, to begin it all and shows him the chains that he will wear through eternity if he does not change his ways. And it's interesting, kind of the 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 imagery that Dickens shows us for kind of, I guess, his take on how those consequences will look if we don't change, if we don't put people first, if we don't love, if we don't live Christian lives. And it brings the spirit of Christmas because it's so much about Redemption, again, um, of course, the life of our Lord is all about the life of Jesus Christ, which is Christmas. But A Christmas Carol is also a redemptive story. It's a story of what happens to a man when he decides to love, when he decides to put people first, when he decides to start giving. And he does, you know, repent. He does recognize his ways. He does say he's sorry And he does dramatically change the way that he lives his life. And it's that redemption that comes through through Jesus Christ. As he finishes up with the last spirit and the time is drawing to a close, he really has had this change of heart. He really understands what he's done wrong. And he's ready to change. He says, good spirit, he pursued as down upon the ground, he fell before it. Your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled of the ghost. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. And that's the name, his name is on his headstone. In his agony, he caught the spectral hand. It taught, it sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit stronger yet repulsed him. Holding up his hands in one last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw in alterations in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. And so he wakes up. He's in his bed. Best of all, the time before him was now his own to make amends. I will live in the past, the present, and the future, Scrooge repeated as he scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive within me, O Jacob Marley, heaven, and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. He was so flustered 
and so glowing with his own good intentions that his broken voice would scarcely answer to his call. He had been sobbing violently in his conflict with the spirit, and his face was wet with tears. So that is why this story is so incredibly endearing and powerful, because we are inspired to change ourselves. We're inspired to be better. We're inspired to take advantage of the lessons life would teach us and to make amends in our own lives, to repair our own relationships, and to redirect our priorities to what's most important as as Scrooge does. And he inspires us to be better and to seek redemption through God. So that's really, really powerful. And that's a great book for youth to read. It's still going to be a little difficult. There's some words they're going to have to look up, but familiarity with the story will help them work through it. And you can read it along with them. Of course, these aren't books that we're used to reading. It is Tiggins. It's a, it is older language. But if, you know, the youngest book is for children, then that book is for youth. And I have one for adults. A Tale of Two Cities is one of my all-time favorite books. If I had to choose five, it might be in my top five. It is also a story of redemption, which is the core of the Christmas season, right? That is really the spirit of Christmas that we are redeemed, that we can be saved because Christ came. And so A Tale of Two Cities is set in the French Revolution. And I'm going to start out by telling you that you have got to get through the first two chapters. I cannot tell you how many people I have encouraged to read this book. And I ask them later how it went. And they tell me they couldn't get through the first two chapters. Okay. The first two chapters are just, just get through them. Just don't even worry about it. It's simply that it's cold and bleak. Um, it's the, it's the male, um, wagon. There are people, travelers on it that are trying to get from one place to another with, with the mail. And they're trying to go up a hill and it's muddy and cold. And so everybody's had to get out and walk alongside because the horses can't drag them all through the mud uphill. It's the Dover mail. And then it heads into Jerry shows up and asks for Mr. Lori and gives him a message. And the message is and, and Lori gives Jerry the message to return back and give, and it's recalled to life. And there's this really dominant theme all through the, the book about life and death. And there's symbolism in the character of Jerry and the character of Lori and the character of, of, of the Evermond family and the character of Lucy and Mr. Dr. Manette. That life and death theme is so powerful and it's all symbolic and reflective of the great life and death and life again of Christ. It is a, it is a, a very symbolic tale that's meant to remind us of the preciousness of life and of our own eventual redemption. As Sidney Carton is a ne'er be good kind of a guy who won't pick himself up and make something of himself and of his life. He's a waste of talent and, um, and possibility who comes to understand the great power of redemption that he can participate in. And if you have not read it, I don't necessarily want to give the whole plot away to you. Although as a study skill, I do encourage people to learn the plot before they read a novel, but I just can't tell you, um, how 
much this book has to teach you and how much it will inspire you. And if you want to feel the Christmas spirit, this book will bring the Christmas spirit into your heart. It will remind you of what's most important. It will inspire you to be better and to think outside yourself and to sacrifice. It will inspire you to make amends in your own life, to take advantage of um, the opportunities that are before you, to participate in your own redemption, to put your family first, all of those things while being very highly entertained. There's some really, really super, super funny parts because Dickens is really hilarious. Uh, I'll, I'll read one of them to you in a minute, one of my uh, favorite parts in the book uh, that's really funny. Um, but it's the story of a man. He's quote, recalled to life because he has spent um, 18 years in a tower in a prison in Paris for something he did not do. And he's lost, lost his mind and his family doesn't know that he's alive. And then he's released from prison and he has one surviving daughter and she thinks that her father is dead and he's recalled to life. He's basically resurrected to her. And this theme of resurrection, of death and resurrection is so prevalent in this book. And so they are able to rekindle their relationship. She is able to help him heal and they're able to build a home life together that is just absolutely beautiful. In the meantime, she falls in love and there's as there always is in Dickens, interconnected plot points that you can't imagine at the beginning that all come together in the end and make for this powerful <laughs> interconnected plot that's really fascinating and thrilling to, to see all play out. It's a, there, are, there are elements of it that are very painful, but it's so redemptive and beautiful in the end of it that you just can't help but be so elevated by it. Um, I'll read you this, this one little funny part. There's a guy who's being, who's been put on trial for, for, um, he, he's see for treason. They're trying him for treason and he just, he, he, ha he hasn't been a traitor. He's eventually found innocent, luckily. And Lucy, the daughter of Dr. Manette, who's the one who was in the tower it unfortunately knows this man. They were on a ship together years before coming back from France into England. There's a lot of interplay between the English and French in the story. And then you watch the beginnings of the French Revolution and watch it playing out. And of course, it's all about death and there's redemption and, and kind of resurrection and in that. And anyway, she's beautiful. But so she's in court with them and and that's how the, the plot really begins to thicken is when she's trying she's watching this man be put on trial and she's so sad for him. And, and they're trying to prove that he has committed treason and he hasn't. So at the end of this trial, the, the attorney goes up to give his closing remarks. And this is the kind of thing that you get with Dickens. And I'm going to read it to you because it's such subtle intellectual humor. It's really great. So he's not, he's summarizing what the attorney said. It's not like he's saying it in the first person and he's tweaking it and putting it in these really funny terms. And so this is the end of the attorney's arguments that for these reasons, the jury being a loyal jury as he knew they were and being a responsible jury as he knew they were 
must positively find the prisoner guilty and make an end of him, whether they liked it or not, that they never could lay their heads upon their pillows, that they never could tolerate the idea of their wives laying their heads upon their pillows, that they never could endure the notion of their children laying their heads upon their pillows. In short, that there would never more could be for them or theirs any laying of heads upon pillows at all unless the prisoner's head was taken off. <laughs> so, so dumb and funny. Um, so that kind of thing is sprinkled throughout that's quite entertaining and funny, but there's, of course, deep, beautiful moments in of uh, many of many rich themes of friendship and loyalty and light and darkness. There's definitely archetypes of Christ and Eve. And um, ultimately, most of all, there's this character in this back in the background, Sidney Carton who we meet for the first time in this trial, and he has given himself up to his worst characteristics. In fact, it says here, um, sadly, sadly, the sun rose. It rose upon no sadder sight than the man of good abilities and good emotions, incapable of their directed exercise, incapable of his own help and his own happiness, sensible of the blight on him and resigning himself to let it eat him away. And he says a lot of times throughout the book that he's not worth saving, that he could never could be saved, that there was no motivation in him to be any different or better than he was. And the one saving grace in his entire life is love. He loves Lucy. He knows he's not worthy of her. He doesn't pursue her and she marries someone else. But it's his love for her that ennobles him and that eventually causes him to be saved. Love saves him. And it's that redemption of Sidney Carton and that recalling to life and that light and darkness and death and life themes, and especially this theme of, of resurrection and eternal life that make this book so incredibly beautiful and redemptive. Um, there's a conversation near the end of the book between two of the characters, um, Carton and a good family friend. And Carton says to this uh, man, he's started out as their kind of their banker, but he becomes a close family friend. And he always calls himself a man of business. He says, he Carton says to him, yours has been a long life to look back upon, sir. And he says, I'm 78, I'm in my 78th year. Carton says, this is, of course, Carton is the one who's, who can't be saved, who's, who's given up living a useful life. You've been useful all your life, steadily and constantly occupied, trusted, respected, and looked up to. I have been a man of business ever since I have been a man. Indeed, I may say that I was a man of business when a boy. And then Carton says, see what, you pl see what a place you fill at 78. How many people will miss you when you leave it empty? A solitary bachelor, answered Mr. Lorry, shaking his head. There is nobody to weep, weep for me. And then Carton says, how can you say that? Wouldn't she weep for you? Wouldn't her child? She's, he's talking about Lucy and, their, and her daughter. Yes, thank God I didn't quite mean what I said. And Carton says, it is a thing to thank God for, is it not? Surely, surely. And Carton ends. 
If you could say with truth to your own solitary heart tonight, I have secured to myself the love and attachment, the gratitude or respect of no human creature. I have won myself a tender place in in no regard. I have done nothing good or serviceable to be remembered by. Your 78 years would be 78 heavy curses, would they not? You say truly, Mr. Carton. I think they would. And then Carton determines upon his course and what he's going to do. And he walks the streets all night, pondering this action that he's going to take. And as he does so, he has constantly in his mind these words, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And with those words, at the foremost of his thoughts, he moves forward in his decided path and makes his redemptive sacrifice. And uh, as you can see, it still moves me. I absolutely adore that book. I would highly recommend you spend some time in it. Get through the first few chapters until Lucy gets to see her father and they take him home and they start their lives together. And then the plot really starts to pick up. And I know the language is not going to be super easy, especially if you haven't spent a lot of time in it. But it is that quality about it that makes it so beautiful. He is so one of the most gifted people with words that have ever lived. And the whole experience will be so elevating for you. And so now you have three Dickens for Christmas. You have a book for your children all about the life of Jesus Christ. You have a book for your youth all about a change of heart in a man who decides to be better and makes his life one to be uh, proud of. And then you have a tale of two cities, a story. If your youth can get into it, then please, by all means, have them read it. But adults especially can have a special experience this Christmas time thinking about that um, life and death and life again that we all anticipate will help us to get to heaven, as Dickens said to his children. And that's my Christmas wish for you this year. I hope you will spend time in one or all of these readings and let them elevate you and remind you of the true spirit of Christmas, which is the redemption of our own souls made possible by our Savior. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a very, very Merry Christmas, and I will see you again in the new year.